Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, West Australian Premier Mark McGowan tearfully resigned from the job of Premier of Western Australia today. McGowan will be remembered as one of the worst premiers in Australian history, leaving behind a legacy that will only be surpassed when Victorian Premier Dan Andrews also pulls up stumps after having burdened his state with debt, energy dependence, social division and economic paralysis. But anyone who visited Western Australia during the height of the COVID years, 2020 and 21, will have seen authoritarianism that was until then more closely associated with the Soviet Union and North Korea. I visited several times during that period to spend time with my dying mum. Sadly, thanks to McGowan's heavy-handed state border controls, I wasn't allowed to make it back for her dying days or her funeral in September 2021. But two teams of AFL players and their extensive entourages were permitted to enter Western Australia at that time, for the far more important purpose of playing an AFL Grand Final. One of those teams was the Melbourne Demons, who are not accustomed to making the Grand Final, and two of their fans, Mark Babbage and Hayden Burbank, snuck in illegally for the event. This is the kind of larrikinism for which Australians were once famous. Our convict nation was born with a healthy disrespect for authority and the world loved us for it. But that changed during COVID, thanks in no small part to politicians like Mark McGowan. When it became apparent that the state had been invaded by a couple of, a couple of exuberant footy fans, McGowan made sure they paid the price. One of the defining characteristics of Western Australia is a lingering resentment towards the eastern states, going all the way back to 1933 when the state voted in a referendum to secede from the Commonwealth. McGowan read the room and the two fans were quickly found and vilified. We are alleging that they falsified documentation on their G2G applications, uh, as I say, including driver's licences, uh, to gain access to Western Australia. The pair were caught and spent Christmas in jail. And that was just the start of it. It was reported in April last year that Babbage had also been stripped of his licence to work as a financial planner. So this was all done in the hope that McGowan could keep COVID out of the state. But why would he go to such drastic measures? Well, despite the enormous royalties and economic activity guaranteed by world-class mining companies like Hancock Prospecting, McGowan had allowed his state's hospital system to decline to the point that a surge in COVID cases would have been a public relations nightmare. In January, the West Australian reported that 2022 had been the worst year on record 
for ambulance ramping at hospitals. Seven-year-old Ashwara Aswath became the tragic face of the state's declining health hospital system. Aswath died of sepsis in 2021 after waiting two hours in the emergency department of Perth Children's Hospital. It was found in February this year that there was a, quote, small possibility that she would have survived if a, quote, cascade of missed opportunities had not occurred. So how else will McGowan be remembered? Let's bring in West Australian law academic Rocco Loyakano. Rocco, welcome. How are you, Fred? Good to have you here, Rocco. Now, Mark McGowan managed to convince the people of Western Australia during COVID that he was, quote, keeping them safe. Do you think that impression will stand the test of time? Look, once people uh, review, review the, the COVID period, I think they'll see that, uh, look, that really, uh, once you scratch the surface beyond that, um, we're not safe at all. I mean, you, you mentioned in your, we weren't kept safe at all from anything really other than, uh, <laughs> other than common sense. Um, I mean, you mentioned in your introduction um, about the, 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 the tragic death of Ashwira, uh, and that, was, that is just scratching the surface of the problems in the hospital in the hospital system. Um, uh, the nurses uh, in this state have been on strike on and off over the last 12 months in un uh, unprecedented industrial action over nurse to patient ratios, which are at, at record levels. Uh, the, the, you mentioned the ambulance ramping, but it's also, other things are also declining in this state. We have a crime rate that's constantly increasing. We have uh, police officers resigning in record numbers. Uh, the 20, 22 record beat the 2020 run record um, wow. of police officers resigning. And uh, the, the voice there that, that, that you showed uh, of uh, former police commissioner Chris Dawson, under whose watch uh, the 2020 run record was set, is now the state's governor. So you can also see that uh, there's been a decline in, uh, in accountability and the separation of powers. And, and speaking of accountability, um, we have a, a, a much vaunted Metronet a rail system which is two years behind schedule, billions of dollars over budget. Um, we had a, a, a procurement of rapid antigen tests which went close to $600 million, uh, which is twice the, uh, twice the amount that was spent on the redevelopment of Bunbury Hospital. So not only is accountability and the health system and the, and the, and the safety of West Australians in their own community going down the toilet, uh, that generally transparency is down the gurgler too. Rocco, there's a lot to unpack from that, but let's just talk about those rapid antigen tests. Did you say 600 million? What, is that $600 million worth of tests that have been unused or something? What? That's right. Uh, the, um, it was originally budgeted, the procurement of rapid antigen tests uh, you know, for people coming into the state and whatnot, was initially budgeted at $3 million. And the Auditor General found in a report that that had now gone to $580 million. And in shopping centres, workplaces and schools, these rats are being given away for free because they're about to expire. If they haven't expired already, they're useless. Um, uh, and the, I'll just quote from the Auditor General's report. She said that uh, 
She said that never before had she witnessed such an escalation in the cost of a program over such a short time frame occur occurring with a lack of due consideration of the impacts or without a record of anyone pausing to ask what level of procurement was sufficient and whether this had been achieved. And that, that report came out two weeks ago, absolutely damning. So what does that stay, say about the style of decision-making inside this government? It, it, it says it's very bad. Uh, I mean, Mark McGowan came to office in 2017 promising gold standard transparency, and uh, we've just seen gold standard stuff-ups um, time after time after time. Uh, two months ago, we had the scandal of the Perth Mint um, doping gold bullion and flogging it off to China, so uh, filling it in with silver and passing it off as gold. Um, and McGowan in Parliament was caught as just brushing it off as a storm in an effing teacup. Um, and, of course, he had to apologise for those comments. Um, and not only that, uh, we also have uh, him... Uh, thumbing his nose at petitions presented to Parliament asking for uh, things like the advice he's received on The Voice. Um, we had an emergency services minister who admitted that he didn't even look at the health advice before continually extending the COVID state of emergency. Uh, I mean, th this is a level of complete lack of appropriateness and governance in the Westminster tradition that would probably be rivaled by Daniel Andrews. Yeah, as I said in the intro, uh, let's, let's just talk very briefly about energy, because I know a lot of the uh, energy generation in Western Australia comes from coal mined around Collie, yeah, which is just near Bunbury in the southwest. Now, what's the state of the energy industry in WA now? I mean, McGowan was preoccupied with transitioning, just like Chris Bowen is over here on the East Coast. He was, uh, the West Australian energy system is independent of the rest of the nation, ostensibly. And McGowan was pretty obsessed with driving it towards renewables. How's that working out? Um, look, at, he, he, there will be a shutdown of the Collie power stations by, by the end of the decade. Um, the thing that is shielding uh, Western Australia at the moment from probably the worst excesses of the energy crisis, notwithstanding the drive to net zero, is under previous governments, because of the um, abundance of natural gas reserves that we have uh, in this state and off the, off the coast of this state, uh, a certain amount by legislation has to be reserved um, for Western Australia. Uh, so um, if it weren't for that, um, yeah, we'd be, we'd be in, a, in a pretty serious position in terms of, in terms of energy. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, he, but he was, he was pretty determined to uh, shift it over to renewables, which is uh, the, the fashionable thing to do, not, uh, not the most economically sensible thing. But let's talk about one of the things that, he, that made him national headlines recently. He said after a trip to China that he thought that the Australian National Cabinet should be held in China as some sort of gesture of goodwill. Now, there is, I know, some dispute about how accurately he was quoted uh, in saying that, but what was the feeling about that in Western Australia? Was he quoted accurately and did Western Australians think, Australians think he was a bit of a dill for saying it? Look, uh, there definitely was a bit of that feeling around. I mean, he even had to correct his his, um, his favourite media outlet, the West Australian, even had to issue a, issue a correction 
Um, and the West Australian stands accused over the last three or four years of being Pravda-like in its adoration of the Premier. Um, but the, the, the problem with McGowan is he can deny that as much as he likes. But look at his record. I mean, since uh, coming into office, and even before, um, he has uh, been, uh, shall we say, uh, has made no bones about his adulation of, of China and how important that relationship is. I mean, he's, he's, he, he, when uh, Scott Morrison was Prime Minister, he criticised him for criticising uh, China. He criticised Peter Dutton as Defence Minister for, for uh, when, when China started doing those exercises in the South China Sea. He said Peter Dutton's attitude was warmongering and it was nutty. Um, but the, the thing, and he even offered to mediate uh, between China and Australia. If, <laughs> and we all know that. That, that was an interesting slip up. Rocco, that was an interesting slip. Mediate between China and Australia as if Western Australia isn't part of the country. I think that was uh, that might have been part of McGowan's grand plan. But let's talk about another thing that really um, made him well known for all the wrong reasons. He put Western Australia on the map around the world for this offensive video. Let's have a listen. This is an important message to keep Aboriginal people safe. And the young message is probably an important one to keep everybody safe one. You can die from the corona or get really sick. You will again pass away from this corona, or you probably can get really sick one. Really sick one. Rocco, were West Australians embarrassed by that? Oh, look, I mean, the, 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 again, the, the coverage it received was, uh, was fawning um, in most media outlets. But um, the, the fact of the matter is you, you, you look at that and you just think, look, how patronising um, mm. uh, that is. And that just and that's just his attitude. That was his attitude to the whole, uh, not just COVID, but generally uh, patronising attitude. I mean, he he criticised people who, who disagreed with him on his COVID policies as drop kicks, as he told people to grow a brain. I mean, that that kind of patronising attitude wasn't just reserved for Aboriginal people. It was it was reserved for all of all of Western Australia. And um, unfortunately, uh, we only had two two or three uh, journalists in this state call it out. Um, but for the rest of it, look, it, it, it really was embarrassing. Well, perhaps today's development is, is proof that you just can't maintain that attitude forever as a politician. Now, he's stepping down at a time when Labor has a massive advantage. It's got 53 of the 59 seats in the state's lower house. I mean, it's alarming. It's, it's weird enough that he would be stepping down when he's got almost complete control over the state. But... Let's have a little look into the future. Who is stepping up and what will happen now? Will it be more of the same, Rocco? I mean, Deputy Premier Roger Cook, uh, who's uh, the former health minister, uh, he, he'd probably be uh, in, in line of succession, probably be the, the next one um, that, that you would think would, would step up. Um, but uh, they're all very much of a same breed there. Uh, you know, all, all this hard left... Uh, hard left uh, nonsense, uh, very, very little uh, in there in terms of the cabinet, uh, in terms of state cabinet that would uh, uh, that would uh, dis disappear or that would disagree, I should say, or move away from um, what from the policies that have that McGowan has put in over the last few years. They very much want to keep them. 
But it, it remains to be seen now whether the Liberals uh, will actually try and uh, form a proper opposition. Um, and that, that was the thing I think we were also very much let down by over here, particularly um, over the last term of government, where um, the Liberals went me too on the health advice. Um, they even tried to out-left McGowan and the Greens on the closure of coal-fired power stations. They didn't stand up um, for the border closures uh, against uh, um, when Scott Morrison wanted to take that to, to, the, to the High Court. So now you, you would hope uh, that the Liberals would try and get their act together, at least present a viable opposition and attack the government, attack the state government on this litany of failures, which now uh, McGowan's successor will have to clean up. Yeah, well, speaking of a viable, a viable opposition, I rang, I have the number for one of the two Liberal uh, MPs in the lower house and uh, rang that person today, didn't get a, didn't, didn't pick up, didn't get a message back. I texted, they can't even stand up on a day like today and say, why is the Premier resigning? It's, uh, it's pretty pathetic. Uh, the, the Liberals will have, to, <laughs> will have to try a little bit harder if they want to form government anytime soon. One that's last it. question, Rocco. Go on, yeah. No, that's it. I mean, he's, a, he's abruptly resigning. I mean, that's the first question you'd ask. Why is he abruptly resigning like Indeed. this? Indeed. Um, Indeed. Yeah. A decent opposition would be all over it with, you know, with, with little <laughs> winks and nudges about what's really going on. <laughs> But uh, right. maybe one day it'll all come out. But Rocco, one last question. I mean, as you know, I grew up in Western Australia. I'm, a, I'm still a, quite a proud West Australian, even though I haven't lived there for over 30 years. The state that I grew up in was a, a tough, independent, robust place where uh, left-wing politics was, I've got to say, considered with considerable Suspicion. I grew up, you know, in the in the under the legacy of Sir Charles Court, who was a very proud West Australian. Do you think the leftist tendencies in Western Australia these days are, are reflective of genuine West Australian culture and attitudes? I think it's also a reflection of the the, the general uh, attitude these days that. Um, that she'll be right, kind of thing, you know. As long as as long as we're doing all right, we don't really care. Um, and if the fact, I mean, you mentioned mining royalties in your introduction. I mean, if it weren't for that, where would this state be? Where would this state be? And that's the thing that's keeping the economy just ticking over, um, and and keeping people in jobs and keeping money flowing into people's pockets. Um, and that's what's insulating this state from what would otherwise uh, be a disaster. Um, and until people realise that that's no longer going to, that's not forever, um, then the realisation hits that, hey, hang on, maybe socialism is not such a good idea after all. Oh, well said, Rocco. You can't say that often enough. Rocco Loyakono, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Perth law academic Rocco Loyakono from Perth. Well, let's talk some more about COVID because here is an important message from Victorian Premier Dan, stop me if you've heard this one before, Andrews from the weekend. Uh, COVID's not over, certainly not over for our health team as they continue to treat hundreds and hundreds of patients. And it's just a timely reminder for all of us, if you're not up to date with your vaccination, please go and get your fifth jab or your fourth or your third, or if you've not been vaccinated at all, have a chat to your GP 
about the really important protective benefits of that against really serious illness. And for, if for no other reason, if uh, keeping yourself healthy is not motivation enough, then go and get vaccinated to take some pressure off our nurses uh, is a really important message and one that we get out as often as we can. Against really serious illness, eh, Dan? Well, here's a really serious illness that wasn't prevented by the vaccine, but was almost certainly caused by it. Wayne Bartlett, who lives in Dan's Dominion of Victoria, had been for his annual heart checkup in May 2021 and was given a thorough bill of health. Eight months later, having had two Pfizer jabs in order to remain employed and enjoy what passed at the time for normal life in locked down Victoria, he was enjoying a couple of beers after work with his colleagues and suffered a massive heart attack. Here's how he described it on my show earlier this month. Um, so I was struck three times by my colleagues. Uh, then two um, first responders, firefighters turned up. They took over. Um, and then the ambulance turned up. And then they took over. So uh, overall, I was... I had CPR for 35 minutes, got shocked seven times. And then the next thing I know, well, I'm uh, waking up in hospital on Saturday. Somebody has to be held accountable for, you know, uh, the, the number of people that have had these adverse reactions and, and passed away. Um, so as long as someone takes responsibility for it, I'd be happy. Wayne now has a defibrillator permanently inserted in his chest, which will restart his heart should it go into cardiac arrest again. It hasn't happened yet, but he's been told it feels like being kicked in the chest. He suffers from constant fatigue, can only work part-time, and will probably lose his house because he will soon fall behind on mortgage repayments. Wayne is one of thousands of people who have suffered adverse reactions to the vaccines and have been left behind by their state and federal governments. Here's another one who appeared on my show this month. Inga Doyle, a personal trainer and triathlete who was rushed into 12 hours of heart surgery four weeks after her second Pfizer jab. This is how she described her situation when she woke up from that operation. I was not in a very good way. I ended up with complete organ failure. I had no kidneys, no liver, no bowels, no saliva in my mouth. I was basically hooked up to machines to keep me alive. It was a real nightmare. I was in so much pain. I was on very heavy drugs. I thought I was going to die many times. I never thought I was going to make it out of there. Well, my life as an athlete is over. Mm. I can do a little bit of exercise again. Um, I have ups and downs. I have chest pains randomly um, and with a kidney problems I'm dealing with, that's permanent. I get tired, a lot more tired than I should be. Obviously I'm depressed and sad often because it's basically, I'm not myself anymore. I can't be who I want to be. But at least Inga is still alive. Raylene Gotts of Toowoomba lost her daughter 51 days after she received her second Pfizer vaccine in November, 2021. You know, her heart rate was through the roof blood pressure extremely high, and they said, 
you have asthma. They gave her 16 doses of Ventolin every half hour for a few hours. Did she, had she ever had asthma before? She did not have asthma. They released her with steroids, a reliever and a preventer for asthma. She took those Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, dropped dead at work. And she goes to work, does what is mandated to be at work, to earn money, to pay tax, drops dead, and then the next day they just hire someone else, no one says sorry, no one acknowledges it, and no one's accountable. They have all the power, zero compassion. Well, to be fair, Dan Andrews does have compassion. It's just that he focus, focuses more of it on the gay lobby, which was obvious when he joined a gay pride march this year, than he does on, say, people protesting the withdrawal of their fundamental freedoms, who in 2021 were met with police dressed as stormtroopers shooting them with rubber bullets. The evidence that the policies trotted out during the COVID pandemic are among the worst in Australian history is starting to become abundant. Last week, the Australian Bureau of Statistics released the mortality figures for February this year. There were 12,736 deaths that month. There are two comparison points for this. One is a baseline average for the years 2017, 18, 19 and 21. These are considered relatively normal years, unaffected by the direct and indirect consequences of the COVID pandemic and lockdowns. So compared to this baseline average, February of this year was 8.9% higher. This is curious enough, but it is also lower than the figure for the previous February. One explanation for this could be that February 2022 was a few months after the most intense phase of the vaccine rollout and that adverse reactions to those vaccines were at their peak. Drawing a link between excess deaths should be easy, as the great Senator Jared Rennick pointed out in a Senate committee in November last year. He asked representatives of the Australian Bureau of Statistics this. Is it possible that you can track those deaths by vaccination status, number one, and then track between the time of death and the time of vaccination? To which the reply from the Australian Bureau of Statistics was... Um, in terms of tracking uh, the vaccination status, uh, that would require analysis of microdata, um, which is available. The, the, there is the uh, Australian Immunisation Register yep. has been linked to the uh, to a database to an integrated data asset called, which goes by the name of MADIP, which is a people-centred integrated data asset, and so it would be possible. It would be possible. The ABS then promised to send such that information linking vaccinations to the time of death to Rennick. Remember, this is information, this is information that could shine very bright light on why Australians are dying in record numbers. But 
Rennick's office told me today that the ABC is now, ABS is now simply refusing to provide the statistical breakdown. On the weekend, another quote from the weekend, the World Health Organization boss, Tedros Ghebreyesus, uh, said this. In the past two years, we have witnessed the fastest and largest vaccination rollout in history, which has been critical to ending COVID-19 as a global health emergency. Wrong. COVID wasn't a health emergency. Worse, the vaccines caused more harm than good. The frightening thing is that Australian governments are in the process of ceding sovereignty to Tedros's World Health Organization, which will then dictate our response should there be another pandemic. And you can bet there will be. Journalist Adam Crichton, one of the sanest voices on the issue in Australia, has a scathing piece in today's Australian about our politicians deferring to the World Health Organization. It ends with this quote, unless the measures imposed during the COVID-19 pandemic and the way they were introduced are condemned as a mistake made in panic, we will have passed a turning point in Western history, one that has ushered in a more intrusive, utilitarian, even totalitarian system of government throughout liberal democracies. But don't take Adam's word for it. Just ask Elon Musk, who tweeted on March 23, quote, countries should not cede authority to the World Health Organization. Well, whoever would have thought that one day such a statement would ring alarm bells in a free country like Australia.